Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Starving Art Podcast. I'm Aiden. Nice to have you. I'm happy you're here. Today on the show, I am sitting down with Madison Kiesler. She is a soloist at San Francisco Ballet, former dancer with English National Ballet, and as you will come to hear, a woman of many talents, a woman of many different interests that she's been pursuing throughout this crazy year. We talked about the early pandemic, her inspiration for recording her life on social media, her production company, Freely Mad Productions, her experience with San Francisco Ballet post-COVID, and some of the issues that ballet is facing looking towards the future. I had a really great time sitting down with her, and I really hope that you will appreciate our conversation. If you like this conversation, I would be so happy if you would share it with people, if you would share it on Instagram, if you would share it on Twitter. Yes, I have a Twitter now. I would really appreciate it. It helps the show grow. It helps me feel like people are getting this message. It just makes me feel better, you know? So I think it's worth it just for that. Anyway, if you like the show, there's more on wherever you get your podcast feed. And please follow me on Instagram, on Twitter, at StarvingArtPod, and you'll get updates about the show, get a peek at editing and the process of finding people, and just some nice words from past guests or artists that I'm looking into, or just, you know, good artistic content I'm always trying to share things that I find inspirational, things that I find true, and just add a little splash, a little splash of art and life and joy, and you won't regret it. So follow me at Starving Art Pod, and without further ado, please enjoy my episode with Madison Kiesler. Joining me today on the show is a dancer with San Francisco Ballet, a former dancer with English National Ballet, actress, business owner extraordinaire, Madison Kiesler. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I wanted to start with the theme of this show is making art in hard times. And obviously, this past year has been a hard time for everyone, but where I first got really interested in you and the work you were doing was actually at the start of the pandemic where you had daily updates on shelter in place life on Instagram. And I wanted to start there. What inspired you to document that time in your life? And how did that outlet help you to get through all of the myriad emotions that were going through your head at the time? I suppose it just happened naturally. I've been a user of social media essentially since the birth of social media. I recently looked it up and I signed up for Instagram six days after it launched to the public. Wow. Yeah. So I've been, you know, using all sorts of platforms and especially when something big happens that I want to connect with people about. I mean, it's kind of the first 
one of the first places I like to go also because my close family and my friends also use it. So it's always been a way that I connect and stay in connection with them. Gotcha. And it seemed to go on for about three months. Uh, Was it just realizing that this pandemic wasn't going anywhere that sort of prompted you to ease off on it? Yeah, I think... I, you know, my boyfriend at the time, now my friend, Benjamin Fremantle, he was doing um, a daily countdown. And I, you know, at some point, I just think he had to announce, he's like, okay, I think this is the last countdown. You know, we were in hundreds (laughs) of days and realizing, okay, this isn't just going to last for a month or two weeks, like everyone kind of initially thought. And it became a, you know, I hate to say it, but a quote unquote new normal. Indeed, it did. And we are still seeking out that normal. But the pandemic seemed to open up a lot of different opportunities for you, specifically Freely Mad Productions, your production company with Ben, seemed to at least initially sort of thrive in this space. You put together two projects since this started, Interconnected and the Ainsley Wear Dance Wear campaign that you did. How was the pandemic um, affecting that process and where did you have to learn how to move forward in a different way? Yeah, it's interesting to look at. Um, I mean, I love him dearly. The, the first day that we all found out we needed to shelter in place, I was thinking, about groceries and toilet paper and all the necessities. And Ben, being himself, uh, immediately went to backdrops. And I was like, what do you mean you need backdrops? And he was like, yeah, we're going to be in our house. We have to create. And I was like, oh, okay, well, are you sure? Uh, yeah, okay, I'm going to get a pink one. I'm going to get a yellow one. And, you know, he that was his immediate go-to, which I adore, is creation and making something meaningful out of the time. So there was an there were a number of different projects that came about, and I, I will say he usually spearheads most of them, which is what I love because I am more of an analytical person, and I'll sit and research and think about it forever mm-hmm. and never actually do anything. <laughs> and that's why I like sure. having him in my life so much is he pushes me to say, "You know enough. Can we just start it?" Or, "Actually, we're doing this tomorrow," and I say, "What?" <laughs> So um, Interconnected, that was a fun film. We actually filmed that pre-pandemic. Oh, interesting. And we just sat on it for a long time. So it's a beautiful film with two dancers from the area, Jaime Diaz Garcia and James Gilmer, I believe is how you pronounce the last name. And yeah, I don't know why. I think we were busy and we just didn't edit it. And then we realized, oh, we have this film and it's perfect for this time period. So that was a fun one to put together with this idea that every touch that they do, everywhere that they walk, it had a whole new meaning with COVID. Um, So that was an exciting one. Absolutely. And you would never guess that it was a pre-pandemic film. The way that it was packaged and marketed made it seem that it was so of the moment. Yeah, no, thank you. I I think that's a beautiful thing about creating and sometimes you put things out right away and that's when it's meant to. But this one, for some reason, we just didn't, which is rare for Ben to let that slip. I will let something, (laughs) oh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Ben usually is the one that, you know, he starts it and he finishes it and it's done. Um, But I think it was, you know, serendipitous that it was meant to be with that one. Absolutely. 
the pandemic in my view has opened up two areas of dance that before seemed to be really unexplored that being dance film and also site specific work and in the past year you've had the opportunity to be on both ends of that with a film like interconnected even though it was pre-pandemic um but also getting to work with sfb at the palace of fine arts and in the presidio looking off into the pacific ocean how have you adapted to these new territories and what has been a challenge and what has been a great opportunity I've always loved film and I've always loved dance. So for me, I've had a desire that the two be combined in a good way for a long time, both as someone creating and both as someone dancing. I um, also have always loved acting and I'm currently trying to send out more auditions and self-tapes and things. So the blessing and the silver lining of this time has been that it's forced dance companies to utilize film. And Mm -hmm. it's forced dance companies to utilize social media and all these different platforms and things that, you know, it's easy to get stuck in certain ways. And you have people from all sorts of generations, both on the administration side and the artistic side, that maybe weren't super comfortable with the idea of putting dance on film or didn't know the possibilities. And so the good thing about this time is people and dance companies are realizing just how powerful dance films can be. And I think they're more than just dance films. It's really a performance, hmm. but it's on film. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds silly because it sounds like the same thing, but it it's quite different. And I think it's been a really powerful outlet. And also as a performer, it's been really satisfying to reanalyze characters, reanalyze how do I do this on the stage and how do I do this in a camera that's going to be a couple inches from my face. And I love that subtlety of acting and whatnot. We recently filmed just a few bits of Mrs. Robinson, which unfortunately due to COVID and all sorts of complications, we're not going to be able to have the full film in the digital season as originally planned. Yeah. Which is such a shame. Um, Instead it's going to be uh, Snowblind, which is also by Kathy Marston um, but it's a piece that was done a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, there's just, unfortunately, that's the time we're living in. Every day is a new day. <laughs> and planning anything in the future is tough. But regardless, there was there were four of us that still got to film a bit of that. And then I got to do uh, the piece you mentioned that was outside at the Palace of Fine Arts and worked with Christopher Wielden in my living room via Zoom. <laughs> so there's been a lot of really good different opportunities. Well, it's wonderful that you're making the best of this. You mentioned that Mrs. Robinson got canceled. So the new ballet, sorry, what's the name again? Snowblind. Snowblind, which I should say the old ballet. Snowblind, is that going to be archival footage? Yeah, so that will be archival footage. Luckily, all our archival footage, we usually have two versions, a far away and close up. So they're really all still beautifully shot. Yeah, I agree. And even watching Midsummer Night's Dream for the first program of your season, I did feel like it would have done well to do an immersive camera experience and get new angles and new shots and all of that. But I was pleasantly surprised with how 
a front facing rarely moving archival production still carried so much of the depth and the nuance that uh seeing it in person has yeah so midsummer was actually it was filmed a little bit different than our archival footage that was filmed right before everything was shut down so that was the last thing we did before covid so we actually found out we got that citywide text of no large gatherings on our opening night of a midsummer night's dream by george balanchine which was a revival and you know it was a big big moment that everyone was really excited about we were all quite literally in our costumes, hair and makeup. It was 45 minutes before the show. The audience was coming in and we all get this text. We all sat there and questioned, well, what's happening? You know, is this illegal? Are we not going to do our opening night? Long story short, luckily our executive director was able to talk directly to London Breed, the San Francisco mayor, and we were able to do that opening night. And then a couple days later when everything was shut down, they also allowed us to do a you know, bigger type of capture for Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, it's super fortunate that that was able to happen because like you said, the whole marketing was first time in 30 years that the War Memorial Opera House is going to see Midsummer Night's Dream. And I mean, the excitement was on par with the Sleeping Beauty production in the last season that had such rave reviews. So it was a shame. Right. No, I I definitely agree. (laughs) Now, during the pandemic, you've been pretty open on social media about the times where you did and didn't dance. And you talked a lot about taking a few weeks and not feeling motivated and not feeling inspired. How, what factored into your decision or decision might be a strong word, what factored into those periods of not dancing? And how did you deal with the pressure internally or externally to keep dancing and keep up in the hope that things are coming back? Yeah, as as a ballet dancer during this time, it's been very strange. You know, I am lucky in the way that I've known what I wanted to do since I was 10 years old. Of course, within that period, there have been ups and downs and moments when I've questioned, okay, do I want to continue? Normal, normal ups and downs. But that being said, there was always this goal. There was always a deadline, something that I, I knew was coming. And this presented the first time in my life, really, since 10 years old, where I had no idea what the future was going to hold. And the first couple weeks, you know, okay, it's exciting. It's something new. We're going to be positive about it. We got wonderful floors from Harlequin Flooring and San Francisco Ballet, and we were able to dance in our living rooms and find a way to continue. But quickly you realize, okay, this this is really tough. Yes, I'm very, very grateful to have an apartment where I have space to dance and super grateful for everything that I do have that I'm able to stay healthy, everything. But it's really hard mentally to, you know, not be in the studio. You realize that the ritual of waking up, you go to class, you are in a room, used to be in a room with 75 other dancers, live piano music, a teacher that's in front of you pushing you, and all that's gone. That daily meditation, that daily routine is gone. And 
at some point I just realized it was not helping me to push and try and stay in this peak shape because it was impossible. There's just no way. Mm-hmm. There, I just said, okay, actually, I don't know if this is going to last a couple more days or a couple more months or, you know, and here we are almost a year later. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm just going to take a break. And what else do I want to do with my time? And how can I use this as a gift rather than cursing it every day as I'm trying to hold on to my chair or my kitchen sink? <laughs> and so I gave myself some space to just kind of be. Yeah. And we all need that. I think that it is lost on non-dancers how much of an impact the daily class i mean rehearsals and performances and the whole lifestyle but daily class really is something that it's hard to explain the importance of it but it's so integral to how you view yourself as a dancer and as you said getting that daily routine of it i had a conversation with a dancer friend of mine and we were commiserating about everything and I just brought up how much I missed open class and getting to go and sit down and the piano and everything you're talking about. And as I was intensely reminiscing, she just broke down. And of course, I didn't mean to make her cry, but it is a testament to how much that routine holds us up as dancers. But as you're saying, it is very difficult in the absence of the goal that the routine is striving for to keep going. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Yeah. One of the things that is underserved in the dance community as a whole, but definitely classical ballet is mental health. And it has been a terrible time for mental health for everyone, but especially dealing with such a high pressure field and all the uncertainties and setbacks that we're talking about. How have you stayed afloat or not stayed afloat? And how do you manage with all of the expectations that your career brings, keeping your mind healthy as well as your body? Yeah. So we touched on that physically, it was hard to not have that daily ballet class, but I agree the mental health has been really tough um i actually have never said this on a public platform before but i'm happy to do so here people who know me will know like oh i always talk about mental health and uh, share different things uh i actually was diagnosed with clinical depression when i was 17 and luckily from the age of 21 until now i just turned 30 not so long ago um i have been medicated and found therapy that really works for me. So mental health is something near and dear to my heart because I know it from the inside out how when you're in a bad place, you know, that's your entire life. Our realities come from the state of our brains and how our mind is. So yeah, this time period was certainly filled with ups and downs for me. To be completely transparent, I at some point had to work with my doctors and we did uh, increase my medication a little bit and continuing therapy. But, you know, all that to say my my day-to-day is extremely positive and I'm in a beautiful place in my life that I'm so grateful for. And I, it's funny, but... (laughs) 
I am so, of course, I, I wish that the world could be um, healthy and normal, but I, I have an immense gratitude for this time period because I've never had this much time in my life to sit and think before, mm-hmm. which has good and bad things, but I've been able to come out the other side in a much better place. And yeah, as someone who always had something to do, I always had the next thing. I wanted to be promoted. I want this. I want, oh, what's this next role? What is, you know, constantly in my head to be forced to have to let all of that go and say, okay, how how am I today? Not what do I need to do? Not what do I need to accomplish? But how am I? Has been phenomenal. And I've been able to sit and read books and um, learn about myself. And I have become a much stronger human from this time period. Well, that is a beautiful thing to come out of the challenges of this pandemic. I'm curious, do you worry about that slipping away after we all go back to normal and you're back to 35 weeks a year at the most hardworking, high-pressure job ever? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes and no. I think I thrive on the um, going. <laughs> so as good as this time period has been to allow me to stop and think, I will take this time period and remember the importance of scheduling in those moments. I've started you know, new daily routines of uh, sitting and thinking and meditating and gratitude and all sorts of things that I will make sure that I carry on even when I'm in an extremely busy schedule. But I also look forward to some sort of going back to more rehearsals and whatnot because it it drives me in a new way. Absolutely. I also thrive on the going, so I totally understand what you mean. I think it's hard for people who don't feel that way. And frankly, the dance world is a field of people who do feel that way, who thrive on being insanely busy for a little while and then crashing completely and then doing it all over again. Lots of things that are hard for to communicate to non-dancers, really. But it will be so nice to go back, of course. Is there anything in this time, specifically practical, tactical, that you found acutely helpful for mental health episodes or just getting out of a funk? Probably number one is having a good support system. And, you know, that'll include, for me, that'll include doctors and therapists, as well as the people that I love in my life. You know, uh, my mother, father, and um, Ben, who has been fantastic. And that's very important. So that, at least for me, when I know I'm getting in my own head and I'm getting into a negative space, I have somewhere to reach out. Now, and you know, when I'm a bit stronger and it's a, I'd say a bit more quote unquote normal kind of sadness or frustration, I definitely love meditating. And I've come to view meditation as a number of different things. You know, for me, it's not just sitting and thinking about the breath and all the different techniques Mm -hmm. that are wonderful and that I do sometimes as well, but that could be just walking without headphones and just breathing and being, luckily I have a little dog, so we do many walks a day. And just being in that present moment 
and not putting any expectations on it. It's It took a lot and it is a continual reminder to kind of let go. I think I have a bit of a control freak perfectionist nature, which most ballet dancers do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this time period, I had to say, look, I am not in control of everything. I'm in control of myself and how I how I allow my brain to wander or not. But I'm not in control whether I get to go into the studio tomorrow or the city closes down everything. So it was important for me to be able to just let that go and not try and control everything, to to be in control of what I could and to let go of the rest and just kind of observe it. That's very stoic of you. Much appreciated. (laughs) But thankfully, at least for now, you are back at San Francisco Ballet. You resumed class and rehearsals in the fall, and you have been hard at work on the digital season. Can you talk to me about how things have changed over there and what the pandemic protocol has done to the normal rhythm of company life? Yeah, absolutely. I feel extremely grateful to be with San Francisco Ballet during this time. And I definitely acknowledge that most companies have not been able to work at all. Some not even open their studios during this time. New York comes to my mind, but so many companies across the country and the world have needed to be completely shut Mm down. So San Francisco Ballet has been able to support us in incredible ways. Financially, we almost have received a completely normal paycheck, which is phenomenal. We had maybe, I think it was about five five weeks wow. or seven weeks cut off from our normal 42-week contract, so it's a bit shorter, but that's still, still great. Mm-hmm. You know, working really well with our union AGMA, as well as San Francisco Ballet. So in addition to the financial side that we felt supported as best we could, we also have been allowed to be back in the studios, as you mentioned. And the protocols are very strict, but they keep us healthy, which is amazing. So we get tested basically every other day. Um, We do a spit test now. We were doing a nasal swab. So we're also separated into different pods depending on casting and what we're working on right now. So you're only involved with a smaller group of people. That way, if something were to happen, your close contacts are not that many. Um, Everyone is, of course, wearing masks completely all the time. No moment where you're allowed to take off. Things like one person in a large bathroom at a time. You know, every little detail has been thought out. That's great. And I mean, I just have to underscore the importance and... Uh, amazingness of the fact that you haven't been financially impacted outside of those five weeks. That is so, so important for the artistic community right now. So props to SFB for doing that. I'm curious, though, how it has been impacted in terms of working weeks as opposed to contract weeks. So you said 42-week contract. That generally means that you're there Monday through Sunday, 42 weeks out of the year, but I imagine it's been condensed significantly because of COVID protocols and trying to make it as short and sweet as possible. Oh yeah, definitely. No, a large portion of this time period 
was really just allowing us to take class uh, for the beginning. We kind of had to take baby steps. We, the company has been working really closely with San Francisco Health Department. So we had to, you know, pass different tests in order to be able to rehearse and whatnot. So at first it was just allowing, you know, your hour and a half or hour 15 class every day then go home. Now we're able to rehearse a bit more because things have been, protocols have been working as they are meant to. Everyone's been safe and healthy. But that means, yeah, no, you're definitely not working the normal hours. So I've been very fortunate that I have been in two of the things that have been filmed for this year and rehearsed. So I've had moments when I'm busy, but then I have moments like now where I'm not cast in the current ballet. So I may not even be allowed to be in the studio for the next couple of weeks, but I'm not positive yet. Oh, wow. Well, I'm sure you want to go, but I suppose it's for the best. Right. Yeah. It's one of those, you know, I, I, of course I always want to dance and I want to do it, but I understand um, it's a bigger ballet. And so they needed to split up that one ballet into multiple pods. So it might mean that those who aren't cast, you know, need to not step into the building, but that's okay. That's where we are. If I've been fortunate to do some things and I'm happy to allow other dancers to do some work too. Yeah, that is where we are. You described this sort of letting go of control and leaning into the uncertainty of the times. Has the leadership team responded in a similar manner or has the stress of everything impacted the general emotion around the rehearsal process? You know, I have to say everyone, you know, that I've experienced, it's all been handled really well. There's been a lot of flexibility needed from management, you know, everything's changing every day. And they need to sometimes remind the dancers of that. Because I think if anything, I, I find that the dancers will get back into routine mode and they're like, wait, well, why can't I understudy this? Or how can I be a part of this? And, and everyone is understandably, at least a couple months ago, everyone was understandably a little nervous about their jobs too thinking, okay, are there going to be cuts and I need to make sure, sure that I'm used this year? And, you know, that normal dancer hustle that because in America we're on year-to-year -year contracts and now you have COVID, everyone wants their contracts. So there was that nerve-wracking moment, which I have to say I am pleased, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but everyone's been rehired for next year, um, which is phenomenal. Hey, that's amazing. Yeah, so I've been very impressed with how management's done everything, and there's been a lot of listening. We've done a lot of Zoom calls and communication and sharing of ideas, working with marketing, opening up our AGMA contract to allow more digital media type of things to go on. I've been really, really grateful for my company. One aspect of your career at SFB that I've been impressed with and I think is important to note has been your speaking. You have been very involved in the educational offerings. You recently hosted the Digital Gala, and it's very impressive to me that you have cultivated your voice alongside your dancing. And as a talking dancer myself, I'm curious how you feel isn't it weird that dancers are never really taught to talk? Yeah, it's very strange. But I like that phrase you just said, a talking dancer. Because it is. It's very, some people are not talking dancers. That's a very good way to put it. Um, 
you know, and what we do is as dancers, it's with our body and not our voice. So I get it. But yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed being able to use my voice and my words to share and communicate and show that I am a thinking artist and not just a body on the stage. Absolutely. And that's one of the big misconceptions that people can have about dancers. Oh, they're not really thinking about this. It's just moving around. So it sounds like it's something that came rather naturally to you. Or do you feel like you've had to work at it and develop your confidence in speaking? I'd say a bit of both. I grew up both my parents and particularly my dad, he was more or less always the general manager of different hotels. And I used to spend a good amount of time there watching him work, watching how he interacted, watching how he spoke to people, um, both as a boss and just as a human. And I think that had an influence on how I learned from a young age that being articulate, knowing what you're going to say and trying to be clear about it is actually a really vital tool. Kind of learn that subconsciously. Of course, it's something that I always think I can improve upon. Even, even for this podcast at the beginning, I was I had so much adrenaline because we don't perform much these days. So this kind of feels like a performance. And so I still find myself able to ramble on too much and whatnot. So it's definitely a, a tool that I try to train. I totally empathize with that. I think that the people in my life wouldn't assume that I'm nervous for these things or am concerned with how it's going to go. But yeah, every time I'm like, oh, okay, I hope I can string together some words for this person, make it sound natural. So yeah, right. you're Isn't doing great. Funny? Don't it's... worry. Um, <laughs> Thanks. It really goes to show that just like dancing, talking and to be a little more grandiose about it, oration is a lifelong skill that, as you're saying, has so many benefits. And I'm how do you feel like you have improved as a person or improved at your job as a result of cultivating this side of yourself? Hmm, that's a good question. And to be honest, I've never really thought about it directly in that way, but I'm sure that it has. And the first thing that comes to my mind is being able to communicate in general. As ballet dancers, I think most of us in school were kind of trained, you just smile and nod. For the most part, most of us were trained to smile and nod no matter what's happening. And I kind of learned early on, well, uh, maybe. I've learned, especially now, <laughs> that communication is so vital, so vital. And that's communication in all ways. So that's communication with my artistic director and my ballet staff, with my coworkers, with myself, but it's also communication with audience members and donors. And part of the beauty of being in a ballet world is we're in a unique community, both with the artists and with our supporters. And I think being able to uh, have deep and interesting conversations with people has given me a gift that I wasn't fully conscious of until you asked this question. <laughs> Happy to illuminate another side of yourself. But <laughs> Thank you. I agree it's so important. And it's especially important because we are in an industry that doesn't prioritize communicating 
what this is even like. And it's such a perennial frustration among dancers of, oh, I wish I could just tell people what this meant to me, what this job is like, what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So I think it's really important to have people like you who can give non-dancers a little glimpse of that. Thank you. Yeah, and I am very quite conscious of that now that there are people in the company who don't feel comfortable raising their voice, and I'm lucky that kind of on and off, but I've been a part of San Francisco Ballet from the school to the company for probably 14 years now. So I feel comfortable enough to be that person that speaks up in a meeting or says the tough questions. So I definitely don't take that uh, for granted. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in your Meet the Artist interview on San Francisco Ballet's podcast network, go check it out, everyone, that you were interested after your dance career to go on to be an artistic director. And this very much factors into the role of artistic director, being able to communicate, like you said, to donors and to your dancers expectations, costs, and the wonderful benefits of having a great dance company. Is that still something that you're interested in doing? Yes, it absolutely is. I don't know where or when, but I am very interested in becoming an artistic director. To be honest, I never really thought about it until I was at English National Ballet and was under the director Tamara Rojo. And I used to kind of think, oh, representation is important. But until I saw firsthand a woman being an artistic director, I never thought about it. And I don't know why, Um, because it kind of encapsulates all the things that I like. I like talking to donors. I love looking at different repertoire and thinking about curating programs is fascinating. Raising money is very interesting to me, which companies all around the world need to know how to do these days all sorts of different parts of the job. And and I think more than anything else, I have been lucky enough to experience a few different companies. So um, danced for John Neumeyer in the Hamburg Ballet, English National Ballet under Tamara, and <laughs> back and forth with Helgi Thomason, which I'm so grateful that he's allowed me to come and go a couple times now. <laughs> and each one has been so different from the other. And I think it's given me a very interesting look into what does it mean to be an artistic director. And I love taking care of people. So I think that also is a huge draw is how could I take care of the artists and the staff and everyone within an organization. And that's such a beautiful place to come from with it. So many people probably think about the prestige of running a big company or getting to say that I am the face of the company. But I love that it's coming from a place of how do I take care of my dancers? How do I take care of this artistic community? That's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of, for a lot of people, they would uh, be terrified to be in that job because honestly, a lot of times you probably have to be the bad guy and it's a, it's a tough position, but I think it's a challenge that I welcome. Sure. I spoke with Graham Lustig, the director of Oakland Ballet, on the show, and I'm not sure if this was part of the interview, but I remember asking him about becoming artistic director and how he made the leap. And he said, well, you know, there's no school for it. 
It's a very rare field. There's so few people who get to step into that role. So it's wonderful that you're taking on the challenge, even in the absence of how to be an artistic director 101. In your Meet the Artist interview that I mentioned earlier, you had a moment where you mentioned being 20 years old and very frantically pursuing all of your dance dreams, but one day realizing if all of this goes well and I get to dance until I'm 40, which is a wonderful goal, I'll be able to have this career for as long as I've currently been alive, which seemed like it was a great comfort and something that helped you slow down and consider a longer time frame. How has that changed at 30? And how does the period of the pandemic and this last year, how has that made you feel about the time left in your career and what goals you have for it? Yeah, I think at 20, that was definitely a really important realization. It's so easy to compare yourself to, oh, so-and-so was promoted to principal when they were 17 years old after only this long. And, you know, we're constantly comparing ourselves. And it was good for me to say, okay, you know what? I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to be the person that at 17 is promoted to principal, and that's okay <laughs> um, to acknowledge, you know, how rare those things are. And it gave me space to learn and grow, and I think I still try to take that with me today. You know, I'm 30, and I'm very grateful that I've been promoted to soloist now, but I think I was in the core for about 13 or 12 years um, before that happened. And it's very easy to look at these benchmarks of, you know, promotions or roles and whatever it might be and say, if I don't do this, then I have failed. And nothing is that black and white. Nothing in life should be that black and white. I've been very fortunate that I've, you know, I chose to move to different companies, which maybe if I'd stayed in one company, I could have been promoted more. But I gained so much experience and knowledge from moving to different companies. I, I wouldn't change that for anything. And so I kind of like to think about all these things. Like I was planting the seed a little deeper. I was allowing roots to really take hold of the ground. And that has then been able to produce a better product, a better flower or tree, whatever I am. <laughs> So I think it's very important to look at the process and not just the final result because we don't have that final result all the time. We're not always on stage, especially now. We're not always in those moments. So it was, it's taking the thought and saying, okay, how can I enjoy the process more? Which when it comes to a career like dance, which is so wonderfully brief, is more important than anything. But Absolutely. it's also been interesting to see in the past couple of years how the ceiling of age for ballet dancers has seemed to really open up with the integration of movement science and proper workout routines to support the work. You know, 30 years ago, it was you dance until you get injured and then you're done and maybe you can teach or something. But now it seems like companies, especially big ones like San Francisco Ballet, Royal Ballet, are 
investing in their dancers in that different way. So we're seeing 40, 45, even 50 year olds principal dancers. So not to set the ceiling at 40, but it's encouraging to see that it's trending in that direction. Yeah, I think it's great that the dance world and the ballet world in general is pushing that so that there isn't that ceiling of 40. But, you know, of course, there's always ways that dance companies in particular, classical ballet companies, uh, need to look at diversifying even more. Absolutely. Which has seemed to be a hot button issue as of late for San Francisco Ballet specifically. For those in the audience that don't know, there has been a push since, I think, late last season for a more equitable leadership team at San Francisco Ballet, as well as the dancers in the company. There's a group of current and former employees that uh, signed an open letter to the company demanding change, increasing racial equity in the company, but also addressing racist incidents and, let's say, color-insensitive decisions by the executive staff. I don't want to prop you up as speaking for San Francisco Ballet, because obviously it's a big organization that you as a dancer only have a small part in. But I'm curious what your take is on the situation, both in how you feel about the people making the demands, the demands themselves, and what you've seen in the company as attempts to embrace that sort of change. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a big it's a big question, isn't it? And it's a very important issue. And I think especially since the death of George Floyd, it spurred a lot of very important conversations that have been going on and need to continue. We need to find a better world. And I am learning how to be a better ally uh, myself. But yes, as you said, I definitely am not speaking on behalf of San Francisco Ballet in any way. I'm just a dancer. But what I can say is that I've been grateful that the company has taken some actions, in my opinion. We have started a number of different DE&I initiatives. And actually, even before this time period, there was a DNI task force that did a number of different things, um, meetings and trying to look at policies, try to create a more equitable workplace. Now, of course, that's become more in the forefront, which I think is great. And I think these educational seminars and conversations that we're all having internally, um, I think most of them should be mandatory because I think we have a lot to look at. Ballet, in general, we have to look at our history Mm -hmm. and we have to question it. And we need to ask ourselves, both as individuals, as artists, and as organizations within an art community, how do we want to proceed? What do we want to do going forward to make things better? And that means making sure an audience feels comfortable, making sure dancers, and not just comfortable, but are treated fairly. It's vital. It is absolutely vital that we take race and gender identity and different religions and we make all people all people, regardless, feel welcome. And that's as employees and as audience members. And it's vital not just in the sense that 
companies everywhere need to be inclusive in that way because because of all the negative consequences and as you mentioned the terribly classist racist what have you history of classical ballet but also in my mind i feel like classical ballet is sort of on a precipice with the public where it's a patronage system there's wealthy donors who donate a lot of money and as a result they get catered to in programming in the types of people on stage and all of that and as that group trends older whiter richer it runs the risk of not fulfilling the rest of the potential audience that's out there i mean to use misty copeland the obvious example not only was it important for visibility for black ballet dancers to have her as a principal for american ballet theater but to look at it coldly it's also a good move for american ballet theater to say hey look we're doing this and attract the audiences that would not come to the ballet otherwise yeah no i definitely agree it's something that has to be looked at from all angles and i've always felt and believed that i i think the theater should be a place of community for everyone Mm -hmm. and i think as a hopeful future artistic director that's something that i think is vital is how do you make this this art form that has a stereotype of being elitist and and to be blunt tickets are really expensive yes so how do we look at all sorts of things to make sure that there are no walls put up to make sure that we can be a part of the community be a part of the neighborhood of the city of the state of everyone you know and to that the theater can be a place for every everyone absolutely agreed and there's a vacancy opening up you may be aware of i don't know if you've been part of that conversation whatsoever but helgi's on his way out (laughs) the director of san francisco ballet after Almost 30 years. Yeah, it's insane. Honestly, none of us were expecting it. I think it's one of those things when someone's been a director for so long, throughout my like 15 years of being involved for, through summer programs and whatnot, I've heard the question of, oh, is Helgi going to retire soon? Or is he going to keep going? Or And then sometimes it was, oh, I think his contract's coming up. Is it going to be renewed? And mm-hmm. all of these things. And, you know, Helgi Thomason has made San Francisco Ballet what it is today. Um, the founders did phenomenal things as well. So that's no way diminishing what they've done. But he's put it on the world stage. Mm-hmm. And I admire him for what he's done, hands down. Um, and he's been an important vital person in my own career. Um, As I said before, you know, both hiring and allowing me to leave and having some good conversations about what I'm looking for and how I want to grow and so on. So I'm sad because he's, he's been a great support for me, but I'm also grateful that he's given so much of his time. And yeah, so there was one morning when we just got an email and it said, okay, uh, you know, there's company meeting. So that means these days, that means you'll be in your separate studios <laughs> or there'll be a Zoom link and you'll watch via Zoom, whatever's happening. So it was a very surreal experience to have Helgi see his little Zoom box and try and understand that he's announcing that he's retiring. You know, he told us before the, the public announcement 
And yeah, it was very shocking. And it would be such a great statement of embracing that more diverse and equitable future if after that they were to hire someone like a woman, like a person of color. We'll see. I don't know if you're privy to any of those conversations, but it would certainly be a bold path forward. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. We have no idea at this point. (laughs) So Helgi will be around until the end of the 22 season. And then he'll still be around during the transition of the next year when the new director is in place to make sure everything goes smoothly. But we have no idea who that will be. (laughs) Well, sounds like if there was a time to throw your hat in the ring, now would be it. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I, I don't think I'm quite there. I still... I still have a desire to dance too much. And after experiencing it, I prefer that the artistic director not also be dancing. I think it works better that way. (laughs) Fair enough. Well said. So dancing is obviously a huge aspect of your life. But as I said before this interview started, I really respect that you have your hand in many different pots. You are a member of the LEAP program through St. Mary's College. You are getting your BA right now. Can you talk to me about that program and what it's done for you to be able to get a college degree while you're still working as a dancer? Yes, LEAP is a fantastic program. If you are a professional dancer or if you have ever been a professional dancer, you can apply for this. So it's a university program geared towards getting your Bachelor's of Arts degree in Performing Arts that you can get credits for being a ballet dancer. So you get credits for the things you're already doing, which is phenomenal. They're recognizing that this job is an education in itself. And then there are a set of 10 core classes that you must complete. And then there's a section of electives. And also a section of those credits are built up um, through writing papers. So that's part of acknowledging that we have gained education through our lives is the subject matters are quite broad that you can write on, but it's a specific format and whatnot, but you essentially can also get credits through that. So it's made so that it can be spread out over a long period of time that you can do it while you're still dancing so that hopefully by the time you retire, uh, you can have your your undergrad degree as well. Which is vital in today's day and age. So it's great that that program is there. You also recently got cast in a movie. So you're an actress now. How did that happen? (laughs) Yeah, so um, it's a short film, a smaller budget thing in the Bay Area, but I'm really excited to be a part of that. I was actually years ago, I was in a a film called Test, uh, where I had a couple lines as well that a number of San Francisco ballet dancers were part of. So I've dabbled in acting a lot. There was one period of time that I was almost, well, actually right before I went to join English National Ballet, I was actually uh, ready to quit and I was ready to move to LA and try and become an actress. And so I've been always curious about film acting and gone back and forth. And during this pandemic, I thought, you know what, instead of taking a class on acting, which I've done before, even though I still have a lot to learn, I'm just going to put myself out there. Again, this was kind of an influence of uh, Benjamin Fremantle. And he was like, why don't we, why don't you just try? And he's also 
auditioning. And so we signed up for backstage.com and magazine and are just sending out self-tapes and auditions and applying to basically anything that sounds interesting to gain knowledge and experience because I'm extremely fortunate that I'm able to work right now and have a paycheck. And I also have a lot of free time, a lot more than I've ever had. So it's one of the many ways that I was thinking, okay, how can I do different things that I love and utilize this time period? That's wonderful. And it is always best to search for a job while you have a job. So good thinking on that. (laughs) Zooming out, obviously you are an artist in so many different ways, but how do you relate to the title of being an artist? What do you think it means to be an artist? And what do you think is your responsibility as an artist to yourself or to the community? I really like the word artist. It's something that I came to when I was a bit older, I think. You know, I used to always consider myself, oh, I'm a ballet dancer or, oh, I'm a professional ballet dancer. But it never felt like an all-encompassing title. So for me, artist, it doesn't just mean a painter or someone who draws, but it's someone who's creating. And these days, there are many different ways to create. There are many different ways to be an artist. And for me, it's important to tell honest and authentic stories as an artist. That for me is what that word means, is I believe it needs to be reflective and and honest. Uh, The word I always come back to is honesty. (laughs) Yeah, honesty and vulnerability, really. Are there any other upcoming projects that you have in the works? Anything stirring around that brain of yours that you'd be willing to talk about? Yeah, there's... There's always a million things that we talked about, the acting and education, all sorts of different things that I have. Oh, I'm also taking singing lessons, uh, which has been really fun. Um, nice. And then in addition, I have been looking into starting my own company. And now that's not a dance company. It's gone down many different iterations. And so it's still being developed but I'm very excited. I've been learning a lot, everything from learning about, you know, different tax formations and learning about LLCs and S-Corp and, and all sorts of the, the nitty gritties of the details, looking to find a good CPA for some advice right now. Um, but essentially, I want to sell some physical products that I have in mind. So I'm in communications with some different manufacturers. I want uh, sustainability and creating an environmentally friendly product to be a big part of it, both in the actual product as well as how it's manufactured. It also, I want to incorporate a sense of community with it. So that's utilizing different platforms, maybe a podcast, (laughs) Um, maybe some YouTube videos, social media, things that I have always been interested in and dabbled in a little bit, just kind of trying to find a way to bring it all together. So yeah, so I've been working on that. So more more details to come for sure. <laughs> more details to come. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I went to through so many different types of names, but I uh, it's just going to be Madison. Nice and simple. <laughs> Perfect. Keep it simple. I saw on your Instagram that you are a very big reader, particularly of self-help and self-improvement books. So to borrow from the Ezra Klein show, what are three books that you would recommend to the audience? 
<laughs> Amazing. Um, let's see. So one book that I've loved recently is You Are a Badass, uh, written by Jen Sincero. Just kind of a kind of spun self-help books on its head a little bit with really modern language. You know, a lot of things are written in a very meditative, peaceful, friendly, calm way. And, you know, she has no problem just saying saying it like it is, but also giving really good advice. So it feels a bit more practical and a bit more accessible than some of the other books. I am really excited. I haven't read it yet, but it's sitting here staring at me is Green Lights from Matthew McConaughey. I've been watching different interviews and things uh, about this book. So it's so I'm I'm really excited to read that one. And then I'd say for book number three is Anything Written by Eckhart Tolle. For me, that was a big breaking point, especially when I was struggling with my depression, is reading a lot of his thoughts and ideas around the ego and around, uh, you know, the power of now, which is one of the titles of his books. Um, mm. So yeah, those would be my choices. Wonderful. Now, where can we find you online? Where would you like to direct people to social media, website, anything like that? I am Madison Kiesler, pretty much on most platforms. So that's M-A-D-I-S-O-N and then K-E-E-S as in Sam, L-E-R. That's at Instagram, I'm that, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Oh, what else? Oh, I just joined Clubhouse. <laughs> Nice. All the platforms. TikTok? TikTok, yes. I've gotten into TikTok recently, which I love. I'm not very good at it yet, like making the videos, but it's it's a great platform. I'm a little late to the game, but I'm 30, so I feel like it's acceptable that I'm late. Ugh, I'm 24 and I'm terrible at social media, so no no judgment on my head. It's true. I guess it doesn't have to do doesn't have to do with age, does it? <laughs> No, but thanks to you, I will be watching The Social Dilemma very shortly. I need to get that information before mm. I try and do the social media push, you know? It's true. If you're not into social media now, you're not going to be into it after watching that. But in a way, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's very important for us to know how these algorithms are ruling our lives so that we can then be more conscious about how we're curating the content. Absolutely. But everyone, ignore that. Go dive into her social media and check it out. Get everything. <laughs> um, Madison, this has been so great. Thank you for sitting down with me. And thanks for sharing your experience through this crazy year. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you.